Well, it's good to be back. Thank you for giving us a chance to get away and uh, rest some as a family and spend some time with our family. Uh, Mostly we spent time with Susie's mom's family in Michigan, uh, but we swung by a quick family wedding and family reunion in Seattle on the way there, and then we hit up another family wedding uh, in Georgia on the way back. And so we got a a tour de force of family and the American transportation system. Uh, And it was good, but uh, it's good to be back. I'll begin with a little story from our trip. Uh, Those of you who know me well may know that I get kind of excited about airplanes. When, before I was married, before seminary and during seminary, I worked for a couple years for Alaska Airlines in Seattle at the airport there. And I think that's really when this excitement took off just to get to walk around the tarmac every day and be around large aluminum things, which, by the way, also fly in the air at like 500 miles an hour. Uh, It was exciting, and so ever since then, I've been excited about seeing these things and understanding how they work and seeing where they go. And uh, in the course of our trip, we passed through the airport in Seattle, where I had worked before like four times. And uh, on one of these times, this is just a typical example of what would happen— We've arrived at the airport for our flight to Chicago to get to Michigan a little bit behind schedule because when you have two small children, you're always a little bit behind schedule. And uh, we got checked in and through security, and we're making the long journey, which involved a walk and an elevator and a train and an elevator and a walk to get to our gate. And I look out the window at the concourse, and I say, Honey, check that out. Do you see that plane over there? That's N423AS. It was just delivered last month. I've never seen one of those. That's so cool. And Susie said, that's cool, honey, let's keep going. Because <laughs> she's thinking, we have a flight that we need to get to, and we are a long way from the flight. So we round the corner, and I can see out to the runway, and I say, honey, check that out. Do you see that big plane that just landed, the one that says Emirates on the side? It's been in the air for 12 hours. It came from Dubai. That's amazing. And she says, honey, we need to get to the gate. And so the journey continued almost every time we passed through an airport. Uh, The point is that I think it is possible for us to be highly aware of our surroundings and tuned into minute details, and at the same time have no idea where we really are and what's really going on. Uh, Unfortunately, I think it can be that way for, for us with the gospel as well. Because I have a message for you this morning that you can ignore if you want. But I hope that you don't. And the message is this. That you were made to live for more than you're probably living for. And you were made to live for more than you really wish that you were made to live for. And the reason why you wish that you weren't made to live for as much as you are is that you can't get there without suffering. And we will all do anything, whatever we can, to avoid suffering. In our passage, it tells us, it's mostly a passage about Jesus and how well-suited he is to be our savior and champion and the foundation of our faith and the forerunner, and that he was made like us in every way. 
It says that it was fitting for him to be made like us in every way so that he could be our savior. And therefore he was made to suffer. If you see in verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. And then in 17 and 18, Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So my first question is this. If Jesus had to be made like us in every way, and then the immediate implication is that he had to be made to suffer, what does that tell us about ourselves? We suffer. You suffer. It's not an invitation or a challenge or a command. It's actually just, a, just an implied statement of what is. You you suffer. There's a lot of different kinds of suffering. Usually when I think of suffering or I'm speaking about suffering, I'm thinking about the suffering that comes just from living in this broken world, the suffering that comes upon us like disease and hurt and people who hurt us. But I don't know that that's really the kind of suffering going on here. If we take a look in verse 18, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted. The first kind of suffering that's spoken of here that I want to draw attention to is suffering that comes from being tempted. That ever since the fall, it is somehow innate to our nature to suffer in our battle against sin. Particularly if one is interested in God and the things of God and wanting to pursue him and be like him and know him, it is inevitable that doing that involves the suffering of temptation. Uh, There's a, a fundamental darkness that comes with being a human being. There's uh, no escaping it, and to push against it inevitably means a type of suffering, suffering against yourself. To be alive with yourself is a kind of suffering. I think sometimes our, um, our artists, be they Christian or not, understand this, or better at expressing it maybe, even than we are. Uh, one of my favorite bands of late is uh, Mumford and Sons. And one of their songs, Marcus Mumford, who has publicly said that he's not really sure if he's a Christian or not, but his parents were worship leaders. And so he's had some sort of familiarity with the gospel, and he's struggling. Wrote this in one of his songs. You told me that I would find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul. And I have filled this void with things unreal. And all the while, my character, it steals. Darkness is a harsh term, don't you think? And yet it dominates the things I seek. And I am uh, drawn to and comforted by this amount of honesty. That's, that's the reality that I live in. 
and I believe it's the reality that you live in. If we take five minutes to uh, ponder ourselves and be quiet with ourselves, I think we find that struggle with our own darkness. Well, there's a second kind of suffering that Jesus goes through in this passage. It's the suffering of death. But then we hear this in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So I think the second form of suffering in the passage is suffering from the fear of death, but it's really suffering from, from the devil. And death, fear of death, is his most powerful tool, but just one among many. And so I kind of imagine what is really involved here is the, is the full palette of all the suffering that can come from the devil messing with you. And I'm a Presbyterian, so I don't really talk about the devil very much. But you may hear about him more and more from me. Because having been here just a few years, and in ministry just a few years, I am convinced that he is real. And then if you set your mind to suffer against your own temptation, to fight back against sin in your life, that he is not appreciative of that, and he will mess with you. It could be with the fear of death. It could be with nasty dreams. It could be with moments of deep doubting and darkness when you're alone. Maybe you're not really worth it. Maybe this Christianity thing isn't really what it's baked out to be. Whatever it is, it will be probably hard for you to notice that he is the one messing with you. And if you start to ask yourself, is this the devil? You'll probably feel crazy because no one ever really talks that way and because he tends to work with your natural weaknesses. So anything that he's messing with you in, it would be easy for you to just be like, well, that's kind of what I struggle with anyway. Well, of course. Whatever natural insecurities or fears that you have or sensitivities in, in your marriage he will exacerbate and mess with to take you out of commission. He is not interested in people living a gospel, freedom-giving life of suffering against sin and engaging with Jesus. He is not interested in being known or exposed. You'll, as I said, just notice you're thinking, ah, Christianity is just such a mess. You'll be thinking, my spouse is such a twat, or whatever it is, and through those things, he will get at you and break you down. And anyone that I know well who is seriously engaged with the Lord has had struggles with this kind of stuff. I just want you to know that it's out there. So we have these two kinds of suffering. Suffering from temptation and suffering from the devil, threatening us with a fear of death and any manner of other things. Why is it that we should bother pushing against this kind of, deal with this kind of suffering to begin with? Right before the passage that we read, 
earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, the author quotes Psalm 8. And it says this. And the, the author of Psalm 8, by the way, in context, is meditating on Adam and Eve, the first man and woman created in the garden. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And this perfectly matches what we hear in Genesis, where God makes Adam and Eve, male and female, both of them together, in his image. And then he gives them creation to rule over and care for. That there's, there's a connection between being made in God's image and serving him here in the creation. That he, he's a creator. He loves to create and take care of things and do good for things. And so he thought up North America and South America and Asia and the Pacific Rim. And then he was like, this is going to be cool. Let's put some islands in the middle of that whole thing. And there'll be some cool volcanoes and some awesome tropical flowers with beautiful smells and awesome beaches. And there'll be birds and humpback whales and monk seals. And this whole thing is going to be awesome. And then I'm going to make a creature in my image to represent me in this space and to care for all of that stuff in a life-giving, redeeming way. And so the psalmist is reflecting on what men and women were created for. What, what is man that you're mindful of him? You made him just a little bit lower than the angels. He's a creature, but he's like just a little bit lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We are called to reign as co-regents with Christ. It would be blasphemous for me to say that if it wasn't his idea. And so this is what we have been called to in our humanness. In our culture, when we think of being here for the good, I think we usually tend to think of big global pictures. You could be an astronaut if you wanted, or president, or found some massive nonprofit that would change the world. This is one of the things I realized in vacation is that I tend to think this way about transformation, about, about fulfilling our calling, what it means to be human beings. When really, I think most of the time it means the small things. It means you're called to be a life-giving, honest, fully present presence for your three friends and the plants in your backyard. Let's start there. But whatever it looks like, that is what we're called to. And ever since the fall, getting there involves us pushing back against sin so we can get there. And then the devil's not impressed with that, and so he pushes back against us too. But that's what it means to be fully human, is to, is to discover more and more who we are. And not in a sort of like culture like, I'm going to find myself kind of a way, but in like, who is it that Jesus made you to be? Because he gave you a unique combination of gifts and talents and personality that we've never seen before. And he's called you to be fully present just the way he made you to be in the world for good and your sin and the devil are keeping you from doing that. But getting there involves suffering against those things. While we were on our trip 
I got to spend time with one of my best friends from college, who's uh, now an elder at another church. He's actually been an elder for five years. And he told me that the last five years have unquestionably been the most difficult five years of his life. That the amount of ugliness he's seen in others and in the church, and most of all in himself, has been overwhelming and crushing. But at the same time, it has given him a newfound sense of freedom and life. And it was so refreshing to spend time with him and his wife. His wife said, I feel like Jesus took us on a shortcut. That it's just been five years, but I feel like we got in about 15 or 20 years worth of growth. And then he said, look, we're both pretty competent people. And we both have our coping mechanisms, and they, I'm pretty confident, could have kept us going for a long, long time. And instead, this is the path that Jesus chose for us. And he brought us to the end of our coping mechanisms and to the point where we knew they wouldn't work faster than anything that I ever could have imagined. And it was horrific. And I feel awesome. There's a a particular person in his life that has been um, a great burden. And he said, I finally come to the point where I can be thankful for them. Not because of their friendship or any other way they've cared for me, but just because I don't know that this could have been produced in my life any other way. And this is a picture of, of what I am trying to share with you. That the type of life and freedom that can come through suffering, engaging our sin and pushing it back against the devil. And by the way, my friend has also had more than his share of nasty, scary dreams about the devil chasing him down and killing him and destroying their church and any number of other things. He's one of many of my good friends who has no doubt about what I said earlier about the devil pushing against him in the middle of this. Well, how on earth do we deal with this suffering or with the devil? Well, that's really what this passage is about. We see that Jesus dealt with it himself. First, we see what we saw earlier, that he has been tempted in every way. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered, like you, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We see in the next couple chapters later, Hebrews 4, 15, The author repeats the same concept. For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. These sorts of verses, until quite recently, were profoundly discouraging to me. Because the Bible prattles on about how Jesus will never leave us alone in temptation, and Jesus suffered all these temptations, and he never sinned. Which basically means that when I sin, it's all my own fault. And how fair is this? Because he was God. (laughs) And then I learned recently that Jesus really did feel all the same temptations that I do. He was fully human. Anything that any of us have ever been tempted to do, Jesus wanted to do. 
I'm sure he was tempted to punch out one of the disciples in frustration with them or explode in anger because it would feel so awesome to be that right for a little while. Jesus was never married. I have no doubt that he longed to be married and to be able to do the sorts of things that in the Bible only married people can do and he never got to. He was fully human and he dealt with these temptations, and this is, this is the key to what I just learned, by the power of the Spirit. This is why it says over and over and over again in the Gospels, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He was baptized for his ministry, and John the Baptist is like, you know, Jesus, you're God, we don't need to do this. And Jesus says, yes, we do, go ahead and baptize me. And so the Spirit of God comes down on Jesus. Now, Jesus is already God, so what can the Spirit of God add to Jesus? Nothing, but Jesus as a man, as a human being, the Spirit adds to him the Spirit's presence, the fellowship of the Father. And so in the midst of temptation and struggle, he could call out to the Holy Spirit. He could pray to his Father. He could wrestle and struggle and cry out like he did in the garden. And I'm sure on many other occasions, My friends, maybe you're catching on already. The Spirit is the same set of resources that we have now been given. He said, it is better for you that I go because if I go, I can send you the same Spirit that I've been wrestling with all of this junk with. Just likewise, he wrestled against the devil. And if the devil is not interested in people fighting against their sins and representing a fully alive humanity to redeem the world, you better believe that he was most of all concerned about Jesus and that Jesus had to have borne the most intense and serious attacks far beyond anything any of us have ever experienced. I heard a speaker say recently that he imagined that if we could get out of our bodies, and into Jesus' body and experience the kind of temptation that he experienced, we would gladly get back into ourselves as fast as possible. And yet Jesus, in reliance on the Holy Spirit, was brave and strong, but also honest about his fear. He was afraid. He was afraid in the garden. He did not want to die. And he told his father, I'm afraid. I do not want to do this. And yet found comfort and strength in the Holy Spirit, resisting temptation, resisting the devil, powered by the Spirit. And what he became, most of all, was free. If anyone was ever free, it was Jesus. We're talking about a guy who felt the freedom to walk into Jerusalem and say highly offensive things in love, to turn over tables, to say... I am. Wherever he was, he was fully himself, fully who God made him to be. And that is what he's inviting you to. Here's why I'm so passionate about this. See, this, the idea that we suffer is just a statement of fact. By virtue of being a human being and a believer, you suffer. It's not really an invitation. But here's where the invitation come in. I think that most of us, most of the time, because we hate suffering so much, we'll do anything to avoid or get away from suffering. 
There's a lot of different ways to do this. I think a lot of times we become a Christian or we become revived and we see sin in our culture and so we, we see sin in ourselves and we fight and we push against it and conquer ground and we take ground and we grow far enough to the point where the sins are small enough and easy enough to hide that we're okay with the ones that are left and we sort of put them in a box and now the suffering, as long as this sort of contained in this manageable extent, we can, we can kind of be done with the suffering for now. Uh, or you can suffer, you can avoid suffering by drowning your sorrows, uh, by checking out or refusing to engage, or coming up with repeated and endless plans to fix all the stuff in your life. Um, but for most of us, especially myself, like we sort of quickly reach this point of stasis where that was enough suffering, that was enough fighting. And so we get to the point where what we have is, is enough. It's good enough. This marriage isn't really what I had hoped for in the beginning. It's good enough. Um, my life and what I hoped for, it's definitely not what I was hoping for, but we're okay. I'm getting through. As soon as I get to the next promotion, we'll be fine, and then I'll retire, and then we'll have enough money, and we can spend some time on the beach. We'll be okay then. And these are kind of the storylines we tell ourselves, all the while settling for less than we could really have because we're unwilling to engage Jesus in the middle of the struggle. I'm realizing more and more that application is the hardest part of every sermon, because all the easy applications really aren't very helpful. There's not very much for me to tell you to do in this fight against sin. But I have to give you something. So I wanted to give you a few of the characteristics that I've seen in other people whom I feel like are fighting this fight well. And the first one is not really something to do as much as something to be aware of, and that is this, that Jesus loves you too much to leave you where you are. He loves you too much to accept you're good enough. And he will mess with you, and he will bring up your junk. What's left for us is to let him do that. To know that he will do it. Let him take responsibility for the struggle. He's the one that's been there. He's done this. He conquered all this stuff. He loves you. Let him take charge. He will bring it up. But when he comes into your life and the conflict is there, in your workplace, in your relationships, in your friendships, in your private moments, Engage him in the struggle. Call out to him. This, this is the tool that he used with his father to call out in prayer, to, to hurt, to rejoice, to hope, all at the same time. To use the resources of the Spirit in prayer and crying out. Knowing that he is working to bring you to the end of yourself. That true life begins at the point where your coping mechanisms don't work anymore. And all you have left is to cry out to him and help. That seems like death. And what I'm telling you is that is the point of life. I usually avoid it. I've been there a couple times and they were good. I want to invite you to the same thing. Next, learn to love that which is set before you more than what you could settle for. 
There's a better life out there. Study it. Contemplate it. Get to know people like my friend who are going through this and have seen the light on the other side. Spend time with them. Soak it up. Read the scriptures just as Jesus did who saw the glory set before him. You were made to be an awesome, glory-filled person. Let Jesus help you figure out who he made you to be. The process of growing in sanctification is the process of holiness becoming more natural. A lot of times we think of it in terms of discipline, if I could just be stronger. That's part of it. But part of it is that we grow to love what is good more. And so what is less than good becomes less appealing. And then it becomes more and more natural to look at the good and say, yes, I want that. I don't care what it takes to get there. I need that. I don't need anything less than this. McDonald's is not going to give me what I need today. I need the real stuff. I need something gourmet. Finally, I think it looks like freedom. And that's hard sometimes in our Christian communities because we will do anything to maintain the strategies and the plans that have got us where we are. And sometimes it means that Jesus made you for the sorts of freedom that we may not be comfortable about. One of my other friends who's involved in leadership at a church told me recently that he has experienced great despair, rage, anger, for years over the fact that his kids don't want to sing in church. And this may or may not be real, but at least in his mind, everybody's looking at him thinking, his kids are not singing in church. And he finally realized that in a very real gospel way, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Because Jesus loves him and Jesus loves his kids and he's going to do his best by them and they'll have their own journey and they may or may not become believers. They probably will. And you know what happened when he stopped pressuring them to sing in church? They started singing in church. Freedom is a better way to live. Well, that's what I had to say. That Jesus, our champion, has gone before us and he suffered because we suffer. And if you call out to him a little bit more than you think you're willing to, you will find a little bit more life than you thought was possible. And we'll have a moment in just a moment to begin calling out to him in the food that he's offering us this morning. That feeding and eating on Jesus is a better way to go. Let's pray. Lord, Most days, I would not have heard this message or understood it. I pray for myself, most of all, that you would help me live with you and trust you. Help me reject my sin and receive the life that you are offering me. Help me trust in you. I have so little trust. Pray that you'd help all of us here who have so little trust. Feed us. Show us what trust looks like in life, that we may feed on you and find something better. Lord, I pray that as a community, more and more of us could find life, the freedom to be ourselves and who you've made us, Lord, in the midst of the struggle that comes in that. Let us support one another. I pray that you would be here with us. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.